Good morning, church. Um, Today's reading comes from John 8, verses 1 to 11. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together as we sit. Father, thank you so much for your word, your unchanging, eternal word that reveals to us your character, your nature, your heart and thoughts on all things. So we ask that you would help us this morning as we look at this passage in light of the context that we're exploring it in. We ask for your help, Holy Spirit, to open up your word, the word you inspired and that you, Lord Jesus, spoke. Give us hearts and minds that understand and then look to follow you with all that we are. In Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk on the radical welcome and radical challenge of Jesus. Given the times we live in and the current debate that's going on in the Church of England, I can't think of a better passage to look at than this one right here. Because the issue before us that I just articulated is serious, it's complex. And it has Christians putting forward views that are seemingly irreconcilable. How do we hold together justice and mercy, law and grace, holiness and humanity? It's always been one of the greatest challenges for the church, a church whose primary calling is to model Jesus Christ, to be faithful to him, And to most clearly portray him as much as possible 
to the world. And what was so interesting last week in watching all of the speeches made at General Synod was seeing the love and compassion that shone through pretty much everyone who spoke, no matter which side of the debate they were on. And what was equally clear was the level of conviction that each side held that their camp was best capturing the heart of God that their camp was most faithfully communicating Jesus. And yet they can't both be right because they land in such different places based on such different theologies, telling such different stories. Separate to this debate and general synod, it's easy to see extremes on either end of the spectrum in the church today and throughout history. On one end, those who go big on the mercy and compassion of Jesus, one who welcomed sinners and outcasts, who ate with tax collectors and prostitutes, a camp who stresses that everyone is welcome as they are, that none are rejected, all are included, but who, in its most extreme form, can drift into saying that there's no need for change, no need for transformation. No need for repentance, in fact. And they think that they speak for Jesus. But then at the other end of the spectrum, you have those who major on the holiness and righteousness of Jesus, the one who knew no sin and was the spotless lamb of God, who came calling all to repent of their sins and turn wholeheartedly to God, and who will one day come as judge, they go big on the warnings that he gave of the judgment that's to come on the earth on that great and terrible day of the Lord when he will separate us all like sheep and goats, rewarding some with eternal life but condemning others to an eternity without him. They rightly stress the seriousness of it all. And they too claim that they speak for Jesus. Two seemingly contrary camps presenting two seemingly contrary Jesuses. I wonder which way you lean. But is there a middle ground? Or to quote the great theologian Eminem, that's a rapper if you're not as cool as me. Won't the real Jesus please stand up? Please stand up. Please. No. Okay. I thought we could all do with a little bit of light relief on this morning. Okay. Well, stand up he does in this passage. Jesus is at the height of his fame. And so when he comes to the temple courts, crowds gather round him once again. At that point, the Pharisees and teachers of the law bring before him a woman who's been caught in adultery. First question to ask is, where's the man? I mean, it's quite hard to be caught in the act of adultery on your own, I would argue. <laughs> but hey, patriarchy, join us next week for our next hot topic, one at a time. I'm joking, we're not actually looking at that next week. So this woman is brought before Jesus, and you hear the voices of those more in camp number two ring out. Teacher, 
This woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? John goes on to write that they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Because if Jesus let her off, then he'd be breaking the Jewish law. But if he called for her stoning, then he'd be breaking Roman law because only they could authorise capital punishment. So Jesus is in a bit of a bind, isn't he? His nature is to show mercy and compassion, but he is also called to faithfully obey God's law. The story goes on. Jesus bends down and begins to write on the ground with his finger. Now I want you to picture the temple, this vast space with open courts where they stood. What was the ground on which they stood and on which Jesus wrote made of? Well, it was a massive slab of stone. If you've ever visited Jerusalem and perhaps the temple, you will know that. Massive slabs of stone. And what was God's law originally written on? The law of Moses that they just quoted. Tablets of stone. And more importantly, who wrote those laws? Exodus chapter 31, verse 18, written 1,400 years before Jesus. When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. Friends, the claim of Christianity is nothing less than that the Holy One of Israel, God Almighty, who first inscribed the law on tablets of stone, including this law about adultery, is now here before this crowd, bending down and writing on the ground, writing on the temple's stone floor, perhaps taking him back to that day when he did it for Moses. Isn't that awesome? You know, sometimes I don't think we have the appropriate level of reverence and awe when it comes to Jesus Christ. As Proverbs put it, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why? Because it helps prioritize all of our other fears. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote. Perhaps he wrote out that command about not committing adultery once more, rightly underlining that the holiness of God and his standards are not to be tinkered with, not to be tweaked or edited by man, because only God can define what sin is. And because sin leads to death, in this case, literally with a stoning, then having clarity on what sin is, is vitally important. But whatever he did in fact write, all we know is that when he got up, stood to his feet, he found a way to uphold both the justice of God, but also the mercy of God. He didn't shrink back from the punishment of the law that was demanded. He just clarified 
how it could fairly be brought about. He simply said this, let any of you who is without sin be the first to cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And again, we've no idea what he wrote. But some preachers have speculated that he began to list the secret sins of all those who'd gathered with stones. It's a powerful thought, isn't it? And indeed, Jesus did know those secret sins, just as he knows yours and mine. Which I guess is where the expression, those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, comes from. And that's why we should always be keen to lean into the mercy and grace of God, because each one of us needs it. None of us are perfect. All of us have sinned and fallen short. Verse 9, the story continues. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first. Don't you just love that bit? That the older ones begin to go away first? I guess because they realized quickest how many times they themselves had fallen short of the glory of God, which is the Bible's definition of sin. The Greek word for sin literally means and speaks of an arrow that misses the bullseye, the full short of its target. And if the bullseye is God's perfection, well, that leaves us all a long way short, doesn't it? Verse 9 again, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. Jesus, the Holy One of Israel, the perfect Son of God, God enfleshed, the only one fit to pass judgment, the only one fit to throw a stone. A terrifying moment for this woman who no doubt knew the law, who knew what she deserved, who didn't try to dress it up, who didn't try to argue how unjust it was or how she and her fellow adulterer were, were really in love and they planned to be married as soon as he left his wife or she left her husband. No, right now, in this moment, she stood under the law as a lawbreaker before the law giver awaiting his verdict verse 10 Jesus straightened up and asked her woman where are they has no one condemned you no one sir she said then neither do I condemn you the very one who could, indeed who many would argue should condemn her, is the very one who offers her mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Not because her sin deserves no punishment, but because he knew he would take it for her. Which is exactly what he did when he went to the cross to pay for her sin, for my sin, for your sin, for the sins of any who would come. 
so that instead of justice, we might receive mercy. Instead of shame, we might get a new start. And instead of death, we might have eternal life. What love. What compassion. What a God. What a radical, radical welcome that this woman received. A welcome where everyone's invited. Everyone can be included. And so getting back to ourselves, we must rightly look to emulate this heart and practice wherever and whenever we can, including as a church. Because we are all sinners saved by grace. None of us are righteous. There's no room for pride or high horses in God's kingdom. But here's the danger for the church. Something that I fear the Church of England has missed. Because Jesus didn't stop there. Yes, he said, then neither do I condemn you. But he also continued, now go and leave your life of sin. Yes, there is a radical welcome, but there is also a radical challenge. The call to leave old ways behind, the call to pursue a holy life, the call to repent and believe the good news. Should the church be a place where anyone and everyone receives a warm welcome and an invitation to belong? Absolutely, 100%. But are there not expectations and grounds for membership? Is there not a cost to our communion with one another? Does the Lord not call us all in different ways to conversion? And the answer to that is an equally emphatic yes. Everyone whom the Lord met and welcomed with grace and compassion in the Gospels left changed and transformed by that encounter. No one comes and leaves the same. This is the life of faith. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Be it Zacchaeus, the tax collector, an outcast whom Jesus invited to dinner, who then promised to repay abundantly everyone that he'd wronged financially or the prostitute who poured perfume on Jesus's feet washing them with her hair because of the welcome she'd received or the thief on the cross who acknowledged his guilt and received Christ's welcome or even Peter the rock on whom the church is built who having denied Jesus three times had to three times reaffirm his love. Friends, God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. It cost Jesus his life, and it's paid for by his blood, which is why, whilst he is always ready and waiting to declare, then neither do I condemn you, 
to any who'd come to him in faith. He will always, always follow it up with, now go and leave your life of sin. And with his help, by his spirit, we can go and do just that. Jesus' first word in the Gospel of Mark isn't welcome, it's repent. Repent and believe the good news. Because it's through doing just that that we receive God's welcome, forgiveness, and eternal life itself. An invitation that's made to all of us. No matter what we thought or said or done, no matter our ethnicity or background or gender or sexual orientation, because the ground is level at the foot of the cross and the door is open to all who'd come, but who would come on his terms, not their own. A radical welcome, but a radical challenge. Only when we have both will we see the real Jesus. Will we be the true church? And will we preach the gospel message that alone can save the world? Amen.